Welcome to A Trip to the Movies, I'm Alex Zane and this episode is brought to you by who else but Odeon. I love an Odeon, especially an Odeon Lux. Whether I'm on the red carpet at a movie premiere or popping down to my local cinema, the feeling's always the same. Pulling open the door to hear the huge, spine-tingling Dolby Atmos sound bellowing from within. The irresistible glow of the gigantic 4K iSense screen drawing you towards it, four times sharper to capture every detail, relaxing into those luxurious reclining seats and feeling that sense of anticipation as you excitedly sip on your favourite beverage before emerging at the end of the film trying to put into words what you've just experienced. It's nothing short of magic. You can book your Odeon Lux experience at odeon.co.uk or on the Odeon app. They say we make movies better and I couldn't agree more. Also, just before we head to our fantastic virtual cinema, how would you like a pair of tickets to head to a fantastic and very real Odeon cinema? Because the lovely people at Odeon have handed us a pair of tickets to give away every show. So if you'd like the chance to head to your nearest Odeon and enjoy a movie, all you need to do is leave us a review. I'll explain more at the end of the show, but congratulations to this week's winner, Rory Conway, who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rory says... I've binged all the episodes. All are brilliant. And you're not the only one with a fear of the ocean because of the legendary Jaws. It still has an effect on me. On my honeymoon on a speedboat tour of the Bahamas, American tourists laughed at me for not getting into the water because of Jaws. They were obviously related to Mare Vaughan. Thank you, Rory. I appreciate that. Drop me an email to triptomovies at gmail.com and I'll send you your Odeon cinema tickets. More details at the end of the show if you'd like a pair of tickets. And finally, for all the latest news and clips from the show, we are on Instagram, Twitter and TikTok at triptomoviespod. All right, back to this episode. If you're ready, let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, the podcast where each week a special guest takes us on an incredible journey as they curate their perfect night out at a fantastic virtual cinema. This week we're joined by a hugely respected clinical and forensic psychologist. She's the director of the California-based Curry Psychology Group and among her numerous specialities she helps couples achieve improvement in both their relationships and individual lives. Taking us on today's Trip to the Movies, please welcome Dr. Shannon Curry. Hello, Dr. Curry. So you have 15 years experience in the field of psychology, but we have a strange similarity in so much as we both started and then left medical school to pursue careers in other fields. Because I'm right in thinking your, your initial kind of career aspiration as a child was to become a physician. How do you know this? This is so sweet. (laughs) <laughs> this, is, this is a well-researched interview i do my homework you really do i absolutely i my dad is, and you'll actually hear this theme throughout the films that i love i was thinking a lot about this in preparation for our interview uh my dad was an emergency room physician when i was a kid and i loved going to the hospital with him and he was deep in long beach and uh they had a lot of gang related violence and injuries coming through um There was no place more exciting to me, more fun, more special than the St. Mary's Long Beach emergency room with my dad. And I don't, there was something about the intensity, seeing him so competent 
and responsive, but also completely non-dramatic about it. I mean, he had always had a sense of humor about him. He talked to everybody, all of the patients, like they were friends. Um, he just looked like such a cool guy. And I loved being there. I'd get all dressed up on my birthday, which is right by Christmas, put on my little Christmas dress, my tights, my shiny shoes, and head over to St. Mary's ER with my dad. And uh, that was really my dream all through childhood was to be a physician as well. Um, I also was drawn to emergency medicine, but my dad ended up getting really burnt out on emergency medicine and switching to anesthesiology. That was for, sort of my first insight into uh, your career aspirations may change as you grow and that that's not the worst thing. And he was very honest with me also about a lot of the challenges in medicine, especially as it was becoming more administrative burdensome and uh, bureaucratic. So when I started pre-med and I, I was just, I didn't really enjoy it. In a way, I think I was immature in that I wasn't fully prepared to buckle down the way that I would be now where you, and he said to me, there are hoops you're going to have to jump through, right? There are hoops and everything in life that you're going to have to jump through just to show that you can, that you have the discipline, that you have the maturity to tolerate a lot of discomfort, do what you're asked to do. And then you, you establish this foundation in biochemistry or whatever else it may be. And you go from there and you make it your own. I've learned that lesson since, but I'm not sure if I just really had the fortitude for it back in uh, my freshman year of college. But also, <laughs> I think the dream was dashed a little bit. So I realized that studying medicine, it would be years before I would ever lay hands on a patient or and until then, it was just going to be brutal, hard science. I, and we're talking, I mean, eight years of that um, with yeah. some rotations later on. So I just I think that reality was a little bit devastating. And I really went through this crisis of not knowing what I wanted to do anymore because that had been really a big part of my identity. I'd already been doing cancer research in high school. So yes, I, I went down a different path. How about you though? What was, tell me <laughs> your story here. Well, not to uh, not to oversimplify, but it sounds like we had a, a similar epiphany, which is that it's a lot of bloody work, and <laughs> I wasn't prepared. To, <laughs> I wasn't prepared to spend university doing that much work. I was like I eight hours a day. People, people doing English literature were doing eight mm -hmm. hours a week. I was like, right. what am I? This is no fun. Right? It was miserable. It was just so <laughs> miserable. But you you've stayed much closer to. Um, to uh, the uh, the healthcare uh, world than, than I have, and you obviously still help people. And um, it feels well, like you're a living the dream because you went down the arts path and you made it. And I yeah. think I tried that, and then after my fifth year of community college and waiting tables, I realized that I needed to move out of my parents' house. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you're living the dream. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did my fair share of working in bars. I think I once worked at a concert for the band Megadeth behind the bar when I was starting out. And I was like, I really That's have epic. to buckle down and work harder because <laughs> this is this is not where I want to be. Um, this feels like a, a good time to be talking to you, though, because I, I, just a, a weird statistic. Obviously, you, you work in um, in couples therapy and in, in relationships and helping people. Uh, with their difficulties. And I think I'm right in saying it, this time of year is when the most applications for divorce actually Isn't go through this. And, and, and here we are chatting. I mean, 
are you do you see an uptick at this time of year in, in people seeking help? Yes. Uh, I saw a funny meme of from a movie. I, I I don't know what movie it was, but it's a guy kind of saying, here they come. And there's an explosion behind him. And it's therapists essentially coming back to work this week after families have spent the holidays together. It It, it is actually true. I mean, I shut my phone off during the week of because my clients, um, I make sure that coverage is in place. They know real crisis. You know, if there's a life and death issue, they know who to call, what to do. Um, but really, if I don't shut my phone off, I will get inquiries all day long, requests to speak. And it's not that I don't care about my clients. I love every one of them. But 15 years in, I mean, back in the day, I'd take every single call, but it's not just one. It's all of them. And then over the years, I've gathered more and more clients that I've even if I haven't seen them for several years, they reach out during the holidays because we all are just going back to this setting and this context, especially with family dynamics, that is dysfunctional for everybody. Even in the best circumstances, families are dysfunctional. It's a bunch of people trying to get along and they are different people. So become and then you add old wounds in there and hurts and sensitivities and personalities that you know that are familiar to you that annoy you or are grating and throw in like some alcoholism here or this brother's tendency to, you know, get spoiled, whatever it may be. And it's just a complete shit show. So you get these calls out of the blue every day during the holidays. And when, when you get back into the office, it is like a complete affront 9am, the phone starts ringing and I can absolutely understand why people would start filing for divorce today. It's people are back in the office. They can reach the attorneys. And also <laughs> nobody wants to deliver bad news during the holidays. So a lot of people, they'll keep the breakup on the table until right after New Year's. Yeah, of course. I guess it's, you know, we have we have these relationships and we, we you know, you spend a lot of time with your partner, but you don't spend it in, in quite such a, a melting pot of of uh, of inescapable closeness in, in so much as we have relationships, but we work, uh, we do other stuff. And then mm -hmm. suddenly all that's taken away from us and we are just with our partner. And mm -hmm. you then begin to go, well, is, is am I happy? What is mm -hmm. happiness? And, you know, in COVID, during COVID, you had kind of two extremes. You either had people really having high levels of conflict or you had a lot of people getting closer because they were sort of self-contained and they didn't have the pressures of their outside lives interfering. So things to argue about, travel plans to argue about, family dynamics to argue about from outside family members, work hours to argue about. They were A lot of people ended up really enjoying each other when their lives were simplified. Then when those challenges represented, those couples struggled. What you see with the holidays is not just that you're spending so much time with your partner, it's that you're spending time with your partner, but you're making big decisions, how much to spend, how you're going to spend it, uh, who you're going to visit, which families are going to be involved, which family members are not going to be involved. There's a lot of drinking involved and everybody gets stupid when they drink. I mean, some people get more problematic than others, but none of us are in our right minds. So things get said that are hurtful. People act in ways that can be hurtful. You're just basically, like you said, stirring the pot. It gets messy. If people are sort of struggling at the moment in their relationship post festive period, is there any advice you'd give them in like in how to proceed? I think there there is one primary principle that we all need to learn, and that is a gentle startup. So whenever you're presenting a concern to somebody, 
Uh, you're going to be far more effective if you start by describing your own perspective and experience. And when I say that, I don't mean saying, I think you <laughs> do this and this and this, or I feel like you are being selfish. That has nothing to do with you. That's just judging or analyzing another person. It's really difficult for us to take the analysis of our partners out of conversations. We do it so automatically, we don't even realize we're doing it. And it is so insulting. And anybody who hears themselves being analyzed and doesn't feel like they get a say in what's actually going on with them is going to get defensive. And then when our partner gets defensive, we get pissed off and then we come in harder and more critical. And then they tend to shut down if they're getting flooded or they're going to get angry and say something nasty. And then we're left wondering why we can't ever talk to our partner. But really, the way we start that conversation over 80% of the time, it is going to determine the way the conversation ends, meaning that you may even get heated in the middle. But if you started gently taking responsibility for your own feelings, owning them simply as your own perspective and not coming in as if you're stating facts, you are very likely to end that conversation on a positive, cooperative, sort of friendly note. So an example of this might be, always one that Ty and I had recently. Uh, I mean, this we do this a lot uh, and it's never smooth. I always think if my clients saw this, the reality of it, it's always a little choppy and we give each other chances because we're gonna, can I swear in this? You can, absolutely. Okay. We're an adult, we're an adult <laughs> okay. show. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. But we're going to fuck it up no matter what. I mean, it's never going to be this smooth. The Gottmans do these beautiful role plays online, and I practice something called the Gottman Method of Couples Therapy, started by John and Julie Gottman, two lovely psychologists. And they do these role plays online, and you ju they're just adorable. But in my version of this stuff, it's rough. I'm married to an Australian. He gets stubborn and angry, and he also feels... This is one message I'd love to get, give deceased couples out in the world. Women, when you're bringing up a complaint to a straight male partner, they have been raised to believe that it is their duty to make you happy and assume responsibility for you. So they are much sweeter and simpler than we give them credit for. And if they get defensive, know a little bit that part of that is because they feel like they've failed in a very profound way. And it, it, if you can give them a shot, to shine for you, get be very specific about what you want from them rather than telling them globally all the ways they're failing you. It's almost like, ugh, I hate saying this, but it's almost like a sweet dog that really wants to please, but they need to very specifically know the task that you're asking them to do very specifically. It needs to be precise, specific, and something they can do rather than something you want them to stop doing. And that's a gentle startup. So we start by saying, hey, babe, I noticed that you didn't run the mail out like you had said you were going to. And then you can add your own emotion toward it. And you're not allowed to say angry or frustrated. Those are cop outs. There's always something beneath it. You could say like, I felt a little bit stressed out when I saw that because I've got so much on my plate with work right now and throw them a bone or a compliment in the same thing. Like, I know you're slammed as well. Do you think that you could run them out this afternoon? And make sure that there's room for compromise. So if your husband says to you, I, I'm actually tied up this afternoon, I got a couple jobs, uh, he has the opportunity to say, but, and then this is also the recommendation for the partner on the receiving end, offer a compromise. 
I'm happy to run it out first thing tomorrow. Sorry, babe. And then you say, no problem. You're so considerate. I love you. I like the dog analogy. It, it works well for me. I, 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 I get that. I get that. So again, not to oversimplify what you said, because I, I think I follow it. So is it more about... Is it more about sort of expressing how something makes you feel? So personalizing it to you rather than right. complaining about someone else's behavior. Right. right. So I think the most important thing is understanding that each you and your partner have your own perspectives and that neither of your perspectives are facts. So let's get away from treating a relationship like a courtroom where you're each presenting evidence of why you're right and start seeing your partner as your friend, somebody who is committed to the relationship like you are. I think that's what's shifted between with me and my husband since we started doing Gottman Couples Therapy. Poor guy dragged him in like first year of our relationship. But uh, <laughs> I think that both of us run hot, but there's sort of this principle that we honor that we both care about the relationship, even if it feels like we want to burn it to the ground. So feelings aren't facts. If you're annoyed, if you're irritated, just present it to your partner. This is my perspective. I noticed this. I'm not sure what your intention was. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, but I noticed something made me feel stressed or it made me feel left out or it made me feel unimportant. And then counter that with a compliment of why you know that, that that's probably not the case. Like you're usually incredibly considerate or I know you've got a lot on your plate. Even if you don't feel that way necessarily in that moment, what you're doing is you're kind of anchoring yourself back to the idea of like, why do I want to be with this person? Why is this relationship important to me? What did I fall in love with? He is actually a considerate person. Even though the male's not there, it doesn't mean he's a complete fucking asshole. And I'm going to throw the whole thing away because I'm having a bad day. So be gentle like you would be with a friend. This is fascinating and fantastic advice. And I could talk to you about it all day. I'm almost for the first time ever regretful that we have to head to our virtual cinema because <laughs> I could listen to, to this. Uh, you know, it's it's... It's genuinely very, very interesting. But, Dr. Shannon Curry, it is Let's time to movies. head to our virtual cinema. That's right. You are our guide. We are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So, we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz, as there always is in a cinema foyer. They hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? I picked my friend Robert. Robert? Tell me about Robert. Robert is the greatest. Uh, he is a journalist. He also, he is a man of many gifts. He used to have a candle making business. He's a journalist. He's a uh, skater. And he does a lot of media stuff for the skateboarding world. He's also a huge movie buff. And he has mild autism. So... He has very strict rules around watching movies and they correspond very well with my rules of watching movies because he's sort okay. of sensory sensitive. He gets incredibly irritated with interruptions that he feels are irrelevant or distractions during a movie. He's also exceptionally bright and he loves movies so much that he's always sort of attuned to the foreshadowing or symbolism or all of the beautiful things that are happening in a film. So I would love, we talk about movies all the time. I would love watching a movie with him, A, because he's not going to talk. He's not going to be annoying during it. He's going to sit there in full reverence the entire time. B, he's going to, he like, I already know he likes some of the same intense movies that I do. C, 
I could nudge him if something really beautiful and layered just happened and he would know exactly what I'm talking about. And that is why, Robert, you are my movie guest. He sounds like the perfect cinema companion. So you like the same movies and he doesn't interrupt you and he treats it with reverence. And I'm guessing he spots a certain amount of symbolism that might go over other people's heads who are just yeah. casual movie watching. And he'd be moved and by it. Do you actually go to the cinema with Robert a lot? Is this Would this be a unique event going we with him? Watched, we went to actually a uh, documentary premiere that he was a part of. Um, and we both had comments. We shared similar impressions at similar parts, which was fantastic. So I've actually, I've not only talked about movies with him quite a bit, but I have had some of an experience with him and it was just amazing. The one part we made fun of, he had me rolling and then we we're back into it, right? So I, I know that he delivers. Robert is your guest for your trip to the movies. There's a clock. On the wall in the foyer, it reads a specific time. What time have we gone to the cinema? I want to go midday because it feels like a treat and I'm not tired and it's a real break. Sort of like, you know, when you'd be in class and the teacher would put a movie on and it's the best class ever, like the best school day ever. It just, I still feel that way if I get to watch a movie midday. Often, I seem to remember that often being a substitute teacher who didn't really know right. the curriculum, who was brought in at the 11th hour and was mm -hmm. just like, you know, here, watch, watch this movie that is probably and 18 rated. And watch anything, anything. Yeah. And it was fascinating because it was midday. What kind of crowd do you get at midday, though? It's, that's that's normally a quieter screening. Yeah. Okay, Empty. so I'm guessing you, you prefer a quieter, a quieter cinema. No interruptions. Nobody being crinkly with stuff. Nobody getting up right in front of you. Get real stressed about people sitting right in front of me. Just want a whole pleasant experience. People sitting in front, people sitting behind, I find quite unnerving, especially Ugh. if it's a quiet cinema and someone sits too too close to you behind. It's like I feel I feel like I'm being watched. I feel like I need to I need to have no one behind me. Do you do you get that way in restaurants? Like you can't have your back exposed to the. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I have to sit. I like. <laughs> Uh, this is this is this is a little this is a little too intimate but i i literally i have to i i make a conscious effort if you and service members have you ever been in the military no 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 why is that well it's really common for service members is it yeah it also cops anybody really uh first responders people who have uh been guards or bouncers anybody who's been exposed to security types of threats or violence or or anybody with other types of PTSD, there is sort of a shared, a shared desire to not have, it's a hypervigilance essentially. So scanning the environment for potential threats and there's a real sense of unease when you're letting your guard down. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have PTSD, it just means that for some reason you are more vigilant to potential threats. That's fascinating because that, that's mm -hmm. exactly it. I just, I feel exposed if mm -hmm. I have my back Vulnerable. to the room. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I have to, I literally, I have to, I, I make sure that I'm the first person into the restaurant when I go with friends so I yeah. can pick the seat Just, where the yeah. wall is behind me. Yeah. And it gets weird. I mean, Ty is the same way and we'll be with crowds or we'll be maybe having a meal with another couple we've never eaten with before. And Ty is getting weird about the chair. <laughs> it's just like, sorry, you guys have to move. <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a very deep seated thing. I will not enjoy a meal, mm-hmm. uh, or indeed at the cinema, if it there's is. someone sitting behind me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Well, we've gone at midday. Uh, you and <laughs> Rob, and uh, now uh, you booked the tickets for our trip. Mm-hmm. So, where are we going to be sitting in the auditorium? So, I actually, Ty said he was like, "You'll be center back." Because of that, but that's usually because of him. He doesn't want people behind him. If it were mm-hmm. just me, and especially if the auditorium were empty, I'd want to be smack dad in the middle. You're not craning to see the screen, but you're also, it's not small and far away from you. And also, there's probably a height issue here. I'm short. So I really do have a fear of people sitting in front of me. I mean, I can't see if they do. I hear that. Yeah. So you like, you're in the middle. Now, I, Again, I, I often find myself talking about this, but I, I, I can't sit in the middle because I, I feel trapped. If people sit either side of mm-hmm. Well, you are. Imagine a fire alarm. Yeah, it's going to be mayhem, what? stampede. You got to think about emergency situations. I mean, I'm learning a lot about myself uh, on this particular <laughs> trip, uh, Dr. Curry. So thank you for that. I, I, I've learned that I, I clearly... I both need to see any potential threats and have a, an escape route uh, should an emergency arise. I mean, it sounds like you already have done that by not sitting in the center. Hmm. It's, it, but it's, it, it really, it's a real thing. It is a real thing. I also, I mean, I am very weird about comfort and ambiance. So the truth is I will, I'm admitting a lot here. And I used to not be, I, let me just say, I lived in a broken down sailboat in my twenties in the Caribbean with no running water or electricity. I've lived in the wilderness. I've done a wilderness program. I can make a fire from sticks, in my little bow drill set if need be. I choose not to in my forties. I have gone the entire other direction. And if we're being completely honest, I will not go to the movies unless I'm going to one of those ones where you buy the actual seat ticket and you have the full recliner and the row is so wide that you could like sit three full adults in front of you just on the ground and you could still walk right through without any blocking. And I like the recliner to go all the way back. And I like to be able to order food from my seat because what if you change your mind and you don't want to miss the movie? And uh, that's that. Otherwise, I want to watch it at home. I, I, I respect that. I respect that decision-making process. So what you're saying is, <laughs> should we find ourselves in a, a, a plane crash in the mountains, you could survive better than any of us. And I'm always judging people on their surviving abilities and how they would be with the group. Deep down, I'm assessing people all the time, like, is this somebody who's going to take us down or freak out and we're all going to get hypothermia because they won't keep hiking that day? Is this someone who's going to sneak the food, the rations? in the middle of the night, steal all the rations because they freak out? Or is this someone who's going to lead lead the group with me? So, I mean, so if you, when you get on a plane, are you sort of looking around you going? I do. I count the seats with my hand. Yeah, I read somewhere when I was little that uh, that when if a plane really goes down, the, the air is so smoke-filled, or if, let's say, you, you just, you can't see, you can't actually see, and the lights are sometimes blocked that illuminate the exit, you know, the lights will illuminate yeah. the exit. So I, yeah. I think I read a captain saying that he actually just touches the seats and counts physically like to imprint it so that if the plane were to go down and the seats were still intact, because let's think of, you know, real disaster scenarios. 
uh, yep. he could kind of feel his way out back to where the exit is. And what I'll also do is look behind me and count backward to, to the nearest exit that way. But wow. I also get a lay of so, the land. I look at the crowd, like who's going to be the weakest link here? Who's going to panic and just start pushing other people's heads underwater, trying to <laughs> rise above? Stay away from that, dude. I mean, you can relate to this, though. Part of you can relate to this. If you're someone who can't have your back exposed, part of you can relate to this. And I don't want to get super dark, but I remember saying to my therapist in my early 20s, I think I was telling her about all the hobbies I had when I was little, like carrying a snake bite kit and learning how to like remove venom if my sister got bit by a rattlesnake when we were in Catalina in the summers and how I'd read these books, like how to escape a fire and all the steps today. And I thought it was a cool interest. And she said, Shannon, how sad that you didn't know, trust that anybody else would rescue you guys. And that when you were six years old, you pursued this as an interest because in your mind, you naturally would have to be the one to save the day. I never you know, put two and two together. I just thought I had an interest in disaster scenarios and survival. But yeah, there is some truth there. There are a lot of kids who that doesn't even occur to them. Am I blowing your mind? No, you are. Because I, I, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I am 100% counting plane seats. It never occurred to me that you yeah. wouldn't be able to see the lights that they make the effort to point out before right. you take off along the floor. Follow the lights. That's what I've always believed would happen. I'm right. counting seats from now. And B, I can completely relate to this idea of entire self-reliance. It's it's about self-reliance. It's being about being dependent on mm-hmm. no one so that, mm-hmm. you know, should everyone else fail, you mm-hmm. can still look after yourself. Right. I get it. Right. And I'm not yeah. going to be like, so how was your childhood? Because I love my parents so much. They were not here to diss them. But I had a very big, chaotic Italian-Irish family, and it was just a shit show. And also oldest sibling syndrome, too, saving all the siblings. Are you the oldest? I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest. Yep. So there yeah. it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come with you on that journey. I'm gonna pretend that part of it was saving my younger brother. It really wasn't. It was just, <laughs> it was entirely, entirely self-serving. <laughs> entirely self-serving. Um, okay. So the air in the foyer is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? So at the luxury theater that I prefer, I like to order a really phenomenal, like a really nice Pinot Noir. And then I get really greedy guts. Like they have menus. And this is just a common thing when I get to a theater. I feel like I should have all the snacks and none of them quite satisfy the way they do when you're a kid, right? You could just give me the hot tamales at age eight. And it was the greatest day of my life. Now I can't quite recreate that. So I pretty much order everything from quesadillas to like salads to they bring you gelato. It's decision fatigue. It's actually a huge issue. Too many decisions means that none of them have the same value. Uh, How is, I mean, considering you're going with Robert, who does not (laughs) like interruptions, how does he feel about a waiter appearing at your seat? What sounds like every seven minutes. Oh, he would be so pissed. Because I'm thinking the documentary, the documentary we went to, we got everything beforehand because they didn't, it wasn't, I didn't get to choose the theater. It was a, you know, what do you call it? When something's like revealed for the first time, a show. A premiere. Thank you. Premiere. Premier, <laughs> Don't worry. Right. No worries. Right. Right. So it was that. So I didn't, you know, there weren't servers or anything. He would hate 
my ordering style. It would be something we would, he would be ranting about for months to come. I actually would probably shut it down because it would bug him. I would know truly how much it was bugging him. I'd shut it down. He did think I had way too much sugar though at the documentary. So you're having Pinot Noir and then uh, everything. Uh, And then everything. Popcorn, sweet or salted? Just the regular. Just the regular. What's that? Salted with butter. Salted with butter. Now, um, this is becoming a common theme on the show of late. Now, when you say with butter, do you mean actually the the butter that you pump on yourself from some kind of... it's kind of gross. We don't have it here. You don't. It's probably illegal. The chemicals that are in it are probably illegal in the UK. No joke. I do think that's it. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, there's, uh, there was a there was a water that was released here by the Coca Cola company, Danassi, Dasani, or something yeah. that's, that's in the US, and it had to be taken off the shelves because our food standards agency believe it contains a carcinogen, uh, whereas oh, the American one shit. says no. Yeah. Good to know. I bet. I bet it's. I bet it tastes great. That butter. I don't like to see it. I like having somebody else kind of put it. On. it it's really weird if you look at it. It bums me out. Tastes good. What does it look like? Well, it's sort of, it's, you just, I, uh, it looks like it's something you shouldn't be eating. The whole, it's, the way it flies out of the pump, I mean, it just doesn't look great. Okay, it's suddenly become less appealing. <laughs> the way it flies out of the pump, that sounds far, far too liquid. <laughs> it is. It's so liquid. Right then. Well, we've got everything we need. It's time to leave the foyer and walk okay. down the corridor towards the auditorium. Posters along the cinema wall illustrate some of your most important movie memories. The first poster depicts your fondest movie memory. What mm. is it? Seeing E.T. with my parents when I was three. I can still remember it. That's that's an early memory. I'm mm-hmm. three years old. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny. That's an early memory. And I also have this weird image that's also from, I think it was my fourth birthday where E.T. came to my birthday. And I remember seeing what I now understand is my dad's beard through the hole in the mask. And so my memory is just when you think about a child's brain, it is this odd memory of confusion. In my mind, it's still E.T. And but I do remember like just this weirdness of seeing E.T. and E.T. had this kind of moving part under the first layer with like a beard. So instead of a clown or a magician, E.T. was the special guest at your birthday. Yeah. So tell me about your experience as a three-year-old watching E.T. I don't, you know, all I, I only remember blips. I just remember the really loving being with my parents and I loved E.T. That's all I, and I remember also I was scared a couple times. Like, I mean, good God, the movies in the 80s that were our childhood movies are so gnarly. Like they come in and E.T. and Elliot are all like, E.T.'s all white and caked over and he's oh. in the weird, I don't know, like biohazard zone and all the men are, I didn't even know they were human beings wearing the biohazard uniforms. It was just like a bunch of aliens from outer space came take this little boy away, take his child friend away, like his dog, basically. And then E.T.'s all sickly and weird, which is scary as hell for a kid. I I did not enjoy that part. But then everything was good in the end. It's, 
utterly harrowing. I mean, let's you know, let's call it what it is. Like it, yeah. Spielberg kills ET, this lovable thing that you yeah. actually watch it die. Yeah, it's a horrific death too. It's awful. <laughs> You're right. When it's it does that sort of pale white. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's yeah. gross. But you loved it though. I did. I did. But I do remember being scared in that scene. How do you feel about Spielberg reversioning it now? Because I think when you saw it, when you were three years old, just around the time I saw it, um, all the men, had, the villains, all the government men had guns. They've all gone now. He took all the guns out. But what's also interesting is that our rates of shooting were so much lower when that movie came out and the guns were just in it. But I could see why you'd want to just take it away now. E.T. Age 3 is your fondest movie memory. Mm -hmm. I just remember it being magical, the whole thing. I think that, yeah, it was just magical. So let's put up a poster of E.T. <laughs> That's your first movie poster. Your second movie poster depicts your worst movie memory. <laughs> oh, God. Can I do two? The first was, uh, I think it was my sixth or seventh birthday. Spaceballs had come out. I was really pumped. Oh. I really wanted to see it. And I got it confused my mom had me pick it in the newspaper. I was a good reader and I liked to find the show times. So my mom said we could all go to the movie and I had to pick it and I mixed it up with Inner Space, which had also come out. And Inner Space was with Meg Ryan. It's when she and uh, what was her ex-husband's name? Dennis uh, Quaid. Yes. That's when they met was in Inner Space. Mm -hmm. And Martin Short is in it and he's incredible in it. But anyway... So, but I was six or seven and I did not want to see this grown up movie Inner Space. I wanted to see Spaceballs. And we get to the theater and we sit down and I start to realize it's not Spaceballs. And I was devastated. Just, I think I cried. I mean, devastated. But then we stayed because, you know, my parents had a lot of kids and they weren't accommodating us. Uh, we stayed and I loved Martin Short so much. So I became a huge Martin Short fan throughout the rest of my life. But that was that was a bummer. The second one is my dad watching uh, The Exorcist while he was studying one day at home when he was switching medical professions. And he'd, he'd be home on the weekends with these big books he was reading and he'd have a movie on in the background. It was always cable and it was always stuff my sisters and I normally wouldn't be able to watch. And uh, But we'd get to kind of hang out with him while he's studying. And as long as you just watch the movie and didn't interrupt... He liked having you around. <laughs> Exorcist was on and that fucked me up for life. I mean, still to this day, when it's dark, if I want to get freaked out, I can just that's what flashes into my mind. That's what flashes into my mind is that girl and her head spinning and speaking wow. other tongues. And I still have a huge I am I have a huge fear of demonic possession and of Satan. <laughs> um, so wait, how old were you when, when you watched The Exorcist then? Really little. Way too little. And did your dad know you were watching it? Was he like easy going? Was he like, ah! He was just easy going, yeah. I remember there were beignets that morning. My mom made some beignets. She was in the kitchen. So she didn't know what we were watching. And, uh, you know, my dad was relaxed. He worked in the ER all day. Just wanted to hang out with his girls. And he also wanted to watch The Exorcist. <laughs> sure, sure. Did he, did he get into trouble from your mom? Yes, I do remember that. 
I do remember that. I don't, I mean, I don't think she knew he would come and he'd get the beignets as she was cooking them and bring them in the back where we were all sitting in the den. And I, I don't think she knew until it was too late. I think maybe Momo was a bust and started crying or something. My, that's my youngest sister. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you weren't even the youngest person in the room watching the exorcist that day. <laughs> right. Right. There were four of us. I was the oldest. I was probably seven or eight. Oh my God. Have you, have you ever <laughs> spoken to your siblings about this? Are they okay? Or is there like a, a little trauma group that you go to? It's our little own trauma group. Of, I mean, there are so many that we like to recount in front of our parents over the holidays. Oh, okay. I, I'm going to put up a poster for the exorcist then. <laughs> God, I don't want... My heart just flipped. Uh, all right, then. Our third poster depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. That was just the other night. Um, and I didn't particularly love the movie. It was... Uh, let's see, what was it? Sam and Kate. It was a, uh, okay. it's a new Dustin Hoffman movie. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, Sissy Spacek, and uh, there's a grief scene. So Dustin Hoffman plays a veteran. There's a spoiler I'm about to give, but he plays a you know Vietnam vet, uh, kind of a grumpy guy, a little bit eccentric, lovable, uh, living with his son. His son is still living at home. Imagine his son, who's played by Jake Hoffman, is probably in his 30s, it seems like, in the film. And uh, Dustin Hoffman passes away and his son takes good care of him, right? I mean, he's not fully bedridden or anything, but his son helps him out. He has some hypertension problems and it seems like he maybe had a recent heart attack. And they live together, you know, uncomfortably and they argue, but but they're friends. And uh, Dustin Hoffman's character dies and the son finds him and, uh, you know, there's a funeral scene. But the one that got me was when the son gets home after and he's in the house and the house is exactly the same as it always is. Uh, and how, uh, what is the word I want? When someone dies, everything just goes back to normal, but you're left with it. So the body's been removed the services happened but the beer bottle is still there that his dad dropped and the remote is on the floor um and he's in this room with all of his dad's things and you can absolutely utterly feel the absence of his dad so everything's home ex everything's there except for the person and every their entire essence and energy and you just feel this utter lack. And that is to me, the epitome of grief. And the son sits down in his dad's armchair and just starts sobbing. And that really moved me. I mean, I was sobbing along with him. And I think that most of us have experienced loss and know that feeling of your life just being fucking blown apart, the guts being taken out of it, the something beautiful and alive and warm just disappearing and what that hole feels like that emptiness that's left afterwards and uh yeah that just that killed me i can imagine were you alone when you watched it did you watch it with that uh... i think ty was asleep on the couch with me and, and you know i think also we're a generation right now where a lot of our parents are aging 
And uh, it's this really difficult thing to navigate. I was just talking about it with a friend recently. My my dad is having some um, cognitive issues and isn't the man he used to be. And uh, so it's the slow grief of, and you're constantly thinking back to your childhood and when they were larger than life and your memories of this person as you see them slip away. And, and also as he's sitting in this chair in the movie, he finds underneath the chair, not only the remote control, but his dad's, this little trinket box with his dad's um, discharge papers from the military and some mementos. And there was just something so true about the scene of the little trinkets our parents have that tell these stories of their lives that, that everybody has that make them them. And uh, yeah, it just broke my heart. Oh, that sounds like, um, yeah, it sounds like a, a, a powerful scene. And and also, what the hell are we supposed to do? Nobody knows what to do, <laughs> especially when you have parents who are having cognitive declines and uh, are resistant or not recognizing it. Nobody knows what the hell to do. Right, then, <laughs> putting up a poster for Sam and Kate, final poster on our walk down the corridor, depicts your unpopular movie opinion. I couldn't think of one. I don't think I have any. I mean, I I don't get political about movies really, so I I don't know if I I don't I don't think I've ever said anything about a movie that's blown anyone away. <laughs> there's, there's no movie that you like, perhaps that uh, that everyone goes. Why do you like that? I mean, maybe the I I was going to talk a lot about like one of my favorite films, which is The Thin Red Line. But I feel like real movie aficionados love that movie, so. I'm not insecure about it. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can, no, you don't have to be insecure about it. Yeah. No, it's just a beautiful film. You can, you can sit with people who like, who, who trade on movie knowledge and go, <laughs> I really like the red line. And they'd be like, welcome, come in, <laughs> come in, have a pretentious coffee exactly. with us. <laughs> I'll have a great time. We're going to get real pretentious. Okay. Uh, well, your unpopular movie opinion is nothing. <laughs> All of my movie opinions are very popular. And accurate. All right, then. We're leaving the corridor. We've arrived at the last set of doors. We're going into the auditorium. Now, there is a queue of people who would like to come in with you. Do you want to invite them into the auditorium or do you want it just you and Rob? Oh, if they want to come in, no, they can come in. They can? Okay, brilliant. Well, the crowd go wild. They're pouring into the auditorium. Now, before the movies you pick for us begins, One of the best things about going to the cinema, it's the trailers. We're going to play a trailer for a film you're looking forward to. What are we playing? Oh, you know what I really want to see that isn't getting made, that was going to get made, is the girl who played with fire, the American version, that was going to be the sequel to uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo, also American version. I was so looking forward to that, and I would like to see a trailer for that, but it's not going to happen. That's a shame, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. yeah, because wait, where are we? So it was, uh, it was uh, uh, Rooney Mara was yes. in the original, wasn't she? With mm-hmm. uh, Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, they were incredible. Mm-hmm. Rooney Mara was unreal in that, and that's one of my favorite musical scores too. Well, songs from a film, not necessarily the, but one of my favorite was Trent Reznor's, uh, and who is the other one? Trent Reznor. And Atticus Ross, their rendition of the immigrant song that opened that up, it was fucking rad. And it, and then the stuff they did with like the black melting, the metal, and the 
trauma sort of symbolism, but in the reserve, the Phoenix flying and the, oh God, it was just fucking art. The whole thing was art. I love that film. I love the intro. I love every bit about it. I love that song. And it was perfect. I really wanted to see a sequel. They didn't do it. It's a bummer. Well, this is your perfect cinema trip. So we're knocking up a trailer for the sequel to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played With Fire. We just put something together for you. With the original cast, they've all agreed. So, yep, it's dumb. It's dumb. It's a dream. Okay. We're going to warm up the audience now by playing your favorite shot or sequence from a film. Ooh. The concert scene in Whiplash. The, the, the climax to that movie? The climax, the final... the final scene, the understanding scene. The student is now the teacher scene. The relationships are messy and fucked up, but they're not necessarily bad. They're just gray. The We can still make beautiful music together. In fact, jazz music, which is just as messy as this relationship and still beautiful. We, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps as I'm talking about it. Oh my God, it's such a good scene. I love it so much. I love it so much. That's the scene. It's 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 an incredible scene. I just, Ugh. I I think I, I didn't pay enough attention when I was watching that movie because I don't think I quite understood what was going on in that scene at the, the very end because I, I think I misunderstood it. I think it was like, it was, I interpreted it as, um, Miles Teller, the drummer, right. uh, he he finally got the approval of his teacher, and that was what I took from the last scene. But mm. I don't I don't know if that's the case. Someone was oh, saying to me, "No, I saw a power struggle happening there. There was a power struggle. Then there was sort of a resignation on the teacher's part. There was a recognition, but his ego. I mean, he's still an egomaniac. So it, there was a, a struggle in the beginning, a power struggle, and that's you know, it's it sort of. What I loved about that was that you can have a brilliant leader and teacher who is also abusive and imperfect, and it doesn't mean that's all they are. They can also be brilliant and inspiring and right. So I love when things are more than just when there are layers to any character. And that whole story to me was about layers, was about accepting and instead of if or but it was all the gray area in life it was the uh dialectics right the balance so and in that scene it wasn't just it, of course it wasn't going to just be a simple oh, i i you know i anoint you now like learned it was still an egomaniac but also a genius who at the same time, after he kind of did this power struggle thing and was pissed, because that's how he operates, he could not help but recognize the thing that is bigger than himself, his love of the music and true genius. And he saw the genius in Miles Teller's character. And that's when he started working with him and doing that and bringing it out, drawing it out. And that's when they started to collaborate. And it was just a thing of beauty, the egos got set aside, they became one with the music. And the music was just, like I said before, just as messy as each of their characters, as each of their personalities, as each of their lives, and as, as their relationship. 
Fantastic. I'm going to, it, make, it makes me want to go and watch it again. Yeah. But yes, what an incredible scene. Okay. Now, uh, you very kindly printed out t shirts for our audience with your favorite movie quote on the front. Thank oh, you. Oh, God. My favorite movie quote is not one that's a t shirt quote. It's, <laughs> oh, my God. If anybody wears this t shirt, they're going to look like such a weirdo. What have you put on a t-shirt? Oh my God. It's like a long, drawn out, very serious poetry bit from the Thin Red Line. It would be that, um, <laughs> so not fit for a t-shirt. Uh, so the, I, I can't remember when it comes on, but it's the voice of a Japanese soldier. Um, and it's something about, um, essentially, to me, it, it, is symbolic of how in war we mistake people that we other, right? And throughout our lives, we are othering people. We forget that we are all sharing this experience of suffering and that that unites all of us. Uh, and so much more than that too. But essentially we demonize others. We, uh, we think of them as different than us. And there's this scene, and I wrote down what the quote is um, so that I don't fuck it up. Uh, but it says something... It's not going to sound right when I say it. And I feel like I vaguely remember, and I could be, this could be a false memory, but like the camera panning over either a war field or maybe it was the jungle as you hear this. But he says, are you righteous, kind? Does your confidence lie in this? Are you loved by all? Know that I was too. Do you imagine your suffering will be any less because you loved goodness and truth? So essentially, to me, this Japanese soldier who is considered the enemy by this American troop is saying, just like you, I was loved. Just like you, I love goodness and truth. Just like you, I have confidence in this purpose or this mission. Um, or just like you, I may not, I mean, there also lies question because he says, does your confidence lie in this? And throughout the thin red line, these service members are talking about um, whether the, you know, the, they're losing their sense of purpose in this war altogether, but, and um, they're all at different places in it. But uh, essentially this, their enemy is sharing a very human experience that is not unlike any of theirs. I love that line. It's great. I can see why it might not belong on a T-shirt, but I, I, I wish I'd known the quote you were picking before I suggested printing it on a T-shirt. Well, maybe it would be amazing on a T-shirt, just this obscure, long quote that confuses people. Yeah. You're wearing the T-shirt on the street. And people are like, can you just stop uh, while I finish reading it? Because I'm finding it fascinating, but it's a, it's a lot to take right. in. Right. Okay. Great quote. Great quote. That's going on a T-shirt. And finally, just to get the audience totally warmed up for our double bill this evening, mm -hmm. we're going to mm -hmm. play your favorite piece of music or score from a film. What are we playing? Well, we already talked about, that's good because I got one knocked out with another question. So we're not mm -hmm. going to play the Trent Reznor rendition of the Immigrant Song. Mm -hmm. I do love... The entire Edward Scissorhands score and soundtrack. It is eerily beautiful. You can play it for Christmas or Halloween. 
or just enjoyment. Um, or, I mean, it's just so hauntingly beautiful, but I'm also, I'm cheating. I'm just going to say a couple more Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters has the most incredible score and soundtrack. And also hauntingly beautiful is that song. I, is it called magic? It's the one that comes on when the ghosts get released and it goes, really, really, really trippy and eighties. Yeah. Magic. I mean, it's like this Ghostbusters suddenly takes such a cool turn. I have gotten into that scene since I was a kid. It just always felt really cool. And then let's see. I think I wrote one down. Oh my God. These are so good. Beetlejuice, entire thing, all of it. The entire soundtrack is incredible. And the scores. Uh, Dirty Dancing, because it shaped my childhood. I got that tape on like the way to Catalina Island one summer stopping at the gas station with my friend's parents and uh, we listened to it all summer. It was just a happy soundtrack. But the final one, the thin red line when he's on the island, AWOL, in the very beginning, um, they play this sort of tribal kind of like um, just singing music that I haven't been able to find, but I probably could now that it's not the early 2000s. Um, if I look again, but it was just so beautiful. I love it so much. Um, so I need to find that and that's it. Okay. I'm, you are now a hundred percent forgiven for not having an unpopular movie opinion because we are playing <laughs> five different scores for our audience. Edward Scissorhands, Ghostbusters, Beetlejuice, Dirty Dancing, and that scene from the thin red line. Oh, they're no doubt ready for a movie now. So, I'm gonna, we're going to start our double bill with the movie that is most important to you. What is the first movie we're playing? The movie that is most important to you. What makes it important? That's a good question. That's a good question. I've just sort of flippantly gone, the movie that's most important to you. But of course, being in the profession you are, you can then dissect that and go, well, well how do you mean important? And now... I feel like I, I should have a, a, a much better answer for you than, you know, just <laughs> a movie that has some kind of historic legacy with you. Perhaps a movie that, you know, you've returned to for inspiration mm. or for a certain feeling that it gave you at a certain time. Then it's French Kiss. It's French Kiss. That I didn't write that down anywhere, but it's French Kiss. I love that movie so much. I find it so pleasant. I love the the experience of watching it. And um, and also I studied abroad in Paris in my early 20s and I was lonely a lot, but I had this laptop and computer back then, which was more like a word processor and it had a disc drive where I could watch a movie on it. And I had two movies with me, The Thin Red Line and French Kiss. Thin Red Line's not one you just watch for like pleasure all the time. So I ended up watching The French Kiss on loop quite a bit the entire time I lived there. And uh, it was just such a lovely comfort. It's a charming movie. And I do love the scene where she's tasting the wines. So I've never seen French Kiss. So for a, a newbie like me, just briefly take me through what, what French Kiss is about. Kevin Klein and Meg Ryan. Uh, Meg Ryan is an American living in Canada with her physician husband or her physician fiance who um, 
calls her drunk from a medical conference in Europe in Paris and tells her he's met somebody and he's in love. And she leaves Canada where she had, I mean, she is the most organized, structured person and she's a school teacher and she has a nest egg to purchase their first home. And she leaves Canada, packs all her vitamins. And while she's on the flight, she's seated next to this French man who she finds personally disgusting and rude, who's asking her a lot of questions. And uh, I can't remember when she realizes he's a thief, but he's a professional thief. And uh, they keep by fate. Uh, she ends up, I think, putting something in her bag or he slips something in there to hide it. And he she ends up leaving with it. And so he has to find her and then they end up having this adventure together and possibly falling in love. And she realizes that he's much more than just a thief. Um, and his family lives on this beautiful, beautiful French vineyard. And when she ends up there with him, they have this moment where he has this box he created as a child with all the different little dried plants and little bins, like a little bento box that grow in this vineyard, all the other, the mushrooms and the rosemary. And he has her take a sip of wine after smelling each of these little boxes. And she can immediately smell the different components in the wine. And he explains to her in this very beautiful scene, how all of these parts of the earth go into these wines and develop its character. Um, I love that part, but it's just a, a pleasant beautiful love story in a beautiful setting lots of beautiful scenes and does it take you back is it is it a quite a nostalgic experience for you when you watch that movie now does it take you back to that time in your life when you were in paris i guess it does although my experience was nothing like that <laughs> nobody was like and smell this and now sip this and what do you smell no that was i was a 20 year old student basically in taxis that i could barely afford like a couple taxis each week riding the subway and uh, studying in my little apartment that I shared with a, a lovely eight-year-old woman, Madame Laurent, who was just fabulous. But it was just me and Madame Laurent. All right, we're here. It's time to announce to our excited audience and your friend Robert in this packed auditorium, the headline movie, the movie out of all others you have picked for us as the climax to tonight. What are you going for? We're going to watch The Thin Red Line. So tell me about your love for this movie, where it comes from when you saw it for the first time. We're going to watch The Thin Red Line, A, uh, because it's something you can only watch like once every 20 years. And it's been about 20 years, so I'm due. And B, all this thinking about movies has reminded me of what an absolutely beautiful film it is. It's been my favorite film since I saw it, I think, in 1998 when it came out. I was a student at Georgetown. And I went and saw it with an old friend of mine from boarding school who also was going to a different school in D.C. We walked down to the theater, saw it. She was unimpressed. I was I almost wanted quiet for the rest of the evening just to kind of reflect, which is also something that Robert understands. He'll watch a movie three times in one night, stay up all night if he's really moved by it and and look for more meaning as he goes through the next times just continuing to process the beautiful art. Uh, that's how I felt when I saw The Thin Red Line. And I know that Robert would not mind sitting through the entire thing with me. I do apologize to the rest of the audience, though, because they may not have known that's what they were in for. 
Uh, I just think that it is beautiful art, um, that it is true to our humanity, that it reflects all of our insanity and craziness and all of the suffering we cause ourselves and each other that isn't necessary. And yet it cuts through with beautiful profundity and, and opportunity for healing and growth and uh, peace. It's a, it's a movie that I, I, I have to admit to a, a bit like yourself. I haven't seen it for about 20 years. And mm-hmm. I remember it being quite a difficult watch as well, though. it's There are moments in it that, are, if I'm right in remembering, are, are quite harrowing. I mean... Uh, brutal, brutal ballad scenes and then really beautiful kind of Eastern philosophy uh, or spirituality type scenes. Uh, what I love is that they have, is it private wit? private wit, I think. I think he's a private. And he's this kind of simple Southern young soldier. I th- are they army? Well, service member. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you know, he's not super sophisticated, but he becomes enlightened. Truly, like if you're thinking of it in the Eastern philosophy sense, he becomes enlightened at the time of his death, which is full circle too, because he's wondering early on, talks about his mother's death. Um, but he really becomes this almost um, like a, I don't want to say a Jesus Christ figure, but possibly, or at the Buddha, or just an enlightened being throughout this. And even the sergeant who's really hard talks to him one day, and he's always been hard on him. Uh, I think it's Private Wit says to him something like, Do you get lonely? And he said, I only when I'm around people, or they have some conversation, and eventually the uh, the hard sergeant says something kind of friendly to him, like, I don't know how you do it. I don't something about his positive outlook or his ability to continue to be kind. And he talks, he says something to the sergeant, like, I still see that light in you. It's just, it's beautiful. And it, and it also is such an accurate, you hear some quotes about PTSD that I've seen in the service members I work with that are just are heartbreaking and how the war changes them and how they don't know if they were, tough enough to handle it that they're on a, this one guy. I don't know if I don't feel anything because I'm more prepared for this than you guys, or if I was already numb to begin with. I mean, they're just, it's just, it's heartbreaking, but poetry, poetry, they make it. So it's such beautiful poetry. Well, on that note, <laughs> that's it. The curtains have closed. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out at the movies. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your trip to the movies. (laughs) You are going with Robert at midday. You are sitting slap bang in the center of the cinema. You're enjoying some Pinot Noir with everything and some salted and butter popcorn, although the butter (laughs) will be squirted on by someone else so you don't have to see it. We're watching the trailer for the unmade The Girl Who Played With Fire sequel. We are then watching the climax to Whiplash we're printing t-shirts with the quote from the thin red line. We're listening to the scores from Edward Scissorhands, Ghostbusters, Beetlejuice, Dirty Dancing, and the thin red line before enjoying a double bill of French Kiss and the movie of the night, the thin red line. Dr. Curry, thank you for taking us on the trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? Oh my God, this was so much fun. 
This was so much fun. I could do this all day. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for your time and have a lovely 2023. Thank you, you too, friend. And as Dr. Curry's cab carries her away from our virtual cinema off into the distance, it's your chance to win a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema. As I said at the start, the lovely people at Odeon have given us a pair of tickets to give away every week. So if you'd like your chance of getting these tickets, all you have to do is leave us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts or a comment on our socials. Uh, you can get in touch on any of them. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. We are at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod. The competition is only open to UK residents and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full ad-free video interview for today's Dr. Curry episode and indeed every guest on our trip to the movies patreon as well as early access to the podcast too and if you'd like to get a taste of those video interviews subscribe to our trip to the movies youtube channel and that really is it i'll be back next week as another guest takes us on a trip to the movies bye-bye